It has long been a tradition amongst fighter pilots to display their prowess in the air with markings on their aircraft, denoting their victories over enemy planes. Often these markings have taken the form of flags, representing the country of which their defeated opponent hailed from. A prime example of this would be a North American P-51D Mustang flown by First Lieutenant Curtis. Having served in both theaters of the war, where he proved himself supremely skilled in the art of air warfare, Curtis's aircraft displayed seven German swastikas, a single Italian flag, a Japanese flag, and strangely, one United States flag. This is the incredible true story of how one US pilot deliberately shot down an American C-47 Skytrain transport in order to save the lives of all those on board. Welcome to Wars of the World. Louis Edward Curtis was born on November 2nd, 1919 in Fort Wayne in the state of Indiana. Completing his compulsory education, he was attending Purdue University when news of the attack on Pearl Harbor was announced, prompting him, like many millions of other young Americans, to sign up for military service in their country's time of need. Joining the U.S. Army Air Force, Curtis entered pilot training before qualifying on the distinctive twin-engined Lockheed P-38 Lightning and was assigned to the 95th Fighter Squadron, 82nd Fighter Group. Arriving in North Africa in late April 1943, Curtis and his fellow airmen found themselves in the thick of fighting as the German Luftwaffe tried desperately to hold back the Allies, who were now squeezing the life out of Field Marshal Rommel's Africa Corps thanks in no small part to Allied air power. Having barely unpacked his things, on April 29th, 1943, he took off in his P-38 Lightning and into combat for the first time. While flying over Cap Bon in northeastern Tunisia, his flight were attacked by a group of Messerschmitt BF-109s. As the fight got underway, Curtis found a 109 pass in front of his Lightning and immediately went in for the kill. Describing the action later, he explained, a 109 came across my sights at a 45 degree angle, passing to the left. I kicked left rudder and followed it down. When within about 300 yards and at about 30 degrees deflection, I let go a very long burst. I could see my tracers curving right into his nose. I broke off at 100 yards and passed in front of the 109, which nosed over and went straight in. There was a big splash and an oval of white foam. The fight was far from over, however, Separated from his flight after shooting down the Messerschmitts, Curtis turned back to join them and spotted another lightning that was being pursued by three 109s. Quote, They evidently didn't see me, and I gave the right-hand plane a big burst. This 109 was lagging a bit behind the other two, which were flying in a very tight formation. My tracers went into him, puffs of black and white smoke came out, and he did a wing over and went straight in. Fixated on attacking the lightning, the remaining German pilots didn't seem to realize that they had lost their comrade behind them and continued firing on the fleeing lightning, allowing Curtis to turn in behind them. Quote, 
I made a 30-degree deflection shot at the leader, closing to 20 degrees and making about 350 miles per hour. The 109 burst into flames, exploded, and flopped into the water. The other 109 was pouring lead into the P-38. I came around onto his tail, shot one burst, missed, and the 109 headed away for home. Unfortunately, despite this incredible effort, the other P-38 Lightning had taken so much damage from the German attack that it too went down into the sea, and Curtis himself was now in trouble. Despite the long legs of the P-38, he had expended so much fuel in the fight that he now lacked the range to return to base. Instead, he was forced to land in a dry riverbed, where he had to wait for engineers to arrive with fuel and steel planking, which allowed him to take off safely. Following this baptism of fire, Curtis adorned his P-38G with the name Good Devil, and nose art that featured Lucifer with a halo above his head. On May 13, 1943, Rommel's Africa Corps was forced to surrender, but there was no let-up for Curtis and his fellow flyers, for they now had their sights set across the Mediterranean and German southern ally Italy. On May 19th, the 82nd Fighter Group was tasked with escorting North American B-25 Mitchell bombers, returning from a raid, coming in hot with eight Messerschmitts pursuing them aggressively. Recounting what happened next, Curtis said, my leader chased one ME-109 off the tail of the first element, and another came in at about a 30-degree angle. I shot him down. We were attacked again, and everyone seemed mixed up. These MEs were fast and persistent, and three dived at us from the rear. Highlighting his aggressive nature in the air, Curtis turned in on them and attacked. His first burst of gunfire missed its target, but the second struck home riddling the German fighter with 50 caliber bullets, mortally wounding it and sending it down into the Mediterranean. With these additional victories, he was now an ace. Flying intensively over the summer of 1943, on June 24th, he would add an Italian kill on another escort mission. Less than a week later, he damaged a BF-109 while flying top cover for the Allied landings in Sicily, after which he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. His citation for the award read, The skillful and zealous manner in which he has sought out the enemy and destroyed him, his devotion to duty and courage under all conditions, serve as an inspiration to his fellow flyers. His actions on these occasions reflect the highest credit upon himself and the armed forces of the United States. But unfortunately for Lewis Curtis, luck was about to deal him a bad hand. On August 27th, 1943, while escorting another B-25 bombing mission, this time to Benevento in Italy, Curtis and his fellow American flyers were struck upon by over 50 Axis fighters near Naples. During the course of the flights, Curtis would add two more German fighters to his kill roster, but the tables turned and his lightning was hit by enemy fire. His comrades were initially unsure what happened to Curtis, as his plane had been last seen in combat near the coastline. His mother, Esther, told later how she was almost certain her son had been taken from her forever, with his body being lost to the Mediterranean. In actuality, Curtis managed to crash land his aircraft on a beach some 10 miles south of Salerno. Realizing there was no escape, he quickly went about destroying his cherished P-38 to prevent it from falling into enemy hands before Axis troops arrived and took him prisoner. 
Curtis and several other allied POWs were interned in a former monastery near Rome, but less than a week later, he was part of a breakout. Sadly, Curtis and a few others were quickly recaptured, but one of them, Lieutenant Edward J. Highland, managed to escape to allied lines, where he gave the names of his fellow escapees, thus letting Curtis's friends and family know he was alive. Having proven himself a slippery customer to deal with, his captors placed Curtis in an Italian maximum security camp. However, it was clear to him and his fellow prisoners that something was not quite right with their Italian guards. After just four days at the camp, Curtis was informed that the Italians had signed an armistice with the Allies and that they had orders to hand them over to the Germans. However, disillusioned with fascism, the Italian guards instead aided in the escape of many at the camp, including Curtis, even giving some of them weapons. Knowing that the Allied armies were invading from the south, Curtis and a few others from the camp would spend nearly eight months roaming through the countryside toward Allied troops, dodging German patrols, scrounging for food, sleeping in caves, and even working with anti-fascist partisans. Then on May 27th, 1944, nine months to the day of his initial capture, he was hiding in a goat pen when he heard gunfire in the distance. Going out to investigate, he was elated to find advanced elements of the British 8th Army nearby and was soon on his way home to a true hero's welcome in Fort Wayne. Eager to get back into the skies and return to the fight, his former prisoner of war status prohibited him from returning to Europe. The fear was that should he be shot down again, the network of partisans and groups of civilians who aided him and his comrades would be put at risk if he broke under torture. Therefore, it was decided to send him to the Pacific Theater to join in the war against Imperial Japan. As well as a change of scene, the transfer also saw him dispense with the twin-engined P-38 Lightning and instead fly the superb North American P-51D Mustang, considered by many to be the Cadillac of the skies. Flying as part of the 4th Fighter Squadron of the 3rd Air Commando Group of the US 5th Air Force, Curtis and his new unit arrived in the Philippines in early January 1945. Just a month later, Curtis scrambled to intercept a Japanese reconnaissance plane, a Mitsubishi Kai 46, known to the Allies by the codename Diner. The Diners were exceptionally difficult aircraft to shoot down being capable of flying at over 400 miles per hour at 20,000 feet, with Curtis's Mustang having only 40 miles per hour of overtake under the best circumstances. Nevertheless, the skilled Curtis was not about to let the reconnaissance plane escape and brought it down with his 650 caliber machine guns. Not only did this give him his ninth kill, but it also saw him join a group of just three Allied pilots who had shot down at least one German, Italian, and Japanese aircraft during the war, a triple Axis ace. As part of his celebrations, he and his comrades wind away the night enjoying the pleasure of the company of a group of local nurses. Just three days later, on February 10th, 1945, Curtis led a flight of four Mustangs to the island of Formosa, some 400 miles away on an armed reconnaissance mission. Their objective was to locate a newly built Japanese airfield that was suspected to be on the island, but the endeavor seemed to prove fruitless, and so they turned for home, passing over Bataan Island in the Formosa Strait. There, things turned hairy very quickly. They suddenly spied a Japanese airstrip, and alerted Japanese pilots scrambled to intercept them. 
In the ensuing fight, Curtis's flight shot down two of the Japanese planes and proceeded to strafe the remainder on the ground, but they hadn't come away scot-free. One of his pilots, Lieutenant LaCroix, had taken several hits during the engagement and attempting to escape, was forced to bail out over the sea. Curtis ordered another of his flight to return to base in order to arrange for more Mustangs to attack the airfield, while he and his remaining wingman remained behind, hoping to coordinate the downed pilot's rescue by a flying boat. He then made another attack on the airfield to discourage the Japanese from trying to take off. It was as he was aggressing from his attack that he spotted a twin-engined aircraft off in the distance approaching the island, seemingly coming in to land. Peering at the aircraft, he began to recognize the shape of what he initially thought was a Japanese L-2D transport plane, known by the codename Tabby. However, as Curtis got closer, he began to realize that it was in fact the famous C-47 Skytrain, and it was sporting American markings. Still in the mindset that the aircraft must be Japanese controlled, otherwise why else would it be approaching the airfield, he felt a wave of anger come over him at the sight of the American markings. Recalling his thoughts later, he said, quote, those damn Japs have patched up one of our buggies and didn't even have the grace to take the markings off. Closing in on the aircraft, he recognized the unit markings as belonging to the 317th Troop Carrier Group known as the Jungle Skippers, and with the pilots seemingly unfazed by his fighter's appearance alongside them, he quickly realized that this was indeed one of their own transports, with Americans on board. The question now was why was it heading for the Japanese airfield? Did the pilots know the airfield was in Japanese hands? Were they lost? One thing was certain, he knew he had to warn them off. He tried frantically to radio the aircraft, but there was no response. Then as the C-47 began its descent towards the airfield preparing to land, Curtis threw his fighter in their path, forcing the C-47 to break off and circle around before again attempting to approach the Japanese airstrip. With his gear down and flaps down, the C-47 pilot seemed hell-bent on landing there, and so Curtis decided to fire ahead of him in order to force him to break off again. Once more, this failed, and now Curtis was within range of the Japanese gunners on the ground, eager to knock his fighter from the sky. Curtis now knew there was only one option left open to him to prevent the C-47 from reaching the airfield. He positioned his Mustang behind the lumbering transport, and with extraordinary aerial marksmanship, he fired a short burst of gunfire into its starboard engine from less than 20 yards away, shutting it down before sidestepping over to the C-47's port side and taking out its remaining engine. Being so low at the time of Curtis's attack, the C-47 ditched in the water relatively intact, approximately 300 yards from the shore. Circling overhead, he saw the pilot and 11 passengers deploy life rafts, and fearing that they would naturally paddle towards the shore, where they would be captured and likely killed, he wrote a note, which he then dropped on their position. It simply read, For God's sake, stay away from the shore. Japs there. They therefore began rowing out to sea, while Japanese troops on the shore took pot shots at them, hoping to get a lucky hit. By now, Curtis was almost out of ammunition and fuel, and both he and his wingman returned to base. Refueled and rearmed, he returned the next day to find his victims, still bobbing in their life rafts in the Song Song Bay, west of the island, and were now joined by Lieutenant LaCroix. Curtis guided a Catalina flying boat to their position and provided them with cover while it rescued them. An investigation into the incident found that the C-47 had gotten lost in bad weather after taking off almost four hours earlier, 
With his fuel gauge running empty, the pilot saw the landing strip at Bataan Island, not knowing it was held by the Japanese, and made a desperate effort to land there. Later, having been handed the passenger manifest of those on board, he recognized one of them as being the nurse he had gone on a date with after shooting down the diner a few days earlier. Despite being confident in his actions that day, Curtis nonetheless expected some form of punishment for shooting down one of their own planes, but it never came. Instead, he received an air medal and had oak clusters added to his DFC from General George C. Kenney, commander of the Allied Air Forces in the Southwest Pacific region for his quick thinking and marksmanship. His official kill count still stands at nine, but that didn't stop ground crews adding a 10th flag to the side of his Mustang, a stars and stripes for his rather unorthodox victory. Curtis continued to see action until the end of the war but would not be credited with any more victories, instead mostly undertaking ground attack sorties as the last of the Japanese were routed. After the war, he was involved in the Berlin airlift and would retire a lieutenant colonel in 1963. Louis Edward Curtis passed away on February 5th, 1995, at the age of 75. And there you have the tale of the US pilot with an American kill marking. Please leave a comment down below with your own thoughts and reactions, and remember to like this video and subscribe to support the channel. Thank you for watching, and I'll see you next time.